The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. The Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the 10th program in our series this election year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This project, this program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about election reflections. Election 2016 was one for the history books. What just happened? Why were we surprised? And what does it mean for the future of democracy? We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host this morning for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. Um, We had hoped to have Ari Berman joining us from The Nation this morning, but he has been called away on deadline because of the appointment announcement this morning of Jeff Sessions to be our Attorney General. Um, But we do have joining me in the studio Professor Mark Brewer. Uh, Professor Brewer is um, a a professor of political science at the University of Maine. He is also co-author of the 2015 book, Polarization and the Politics of Personal Responsibility. Thank you for joining us, Mark. My pleasure, Anne. And joining us on the phone is Kathy Culleton-Gonzalez. Kathy is a senior counsel at DEMOS, a national civil rights organization where she participates in litigation and policy advocacy to ensure an inclusive democracy and equal opportunity for all. She's also chairwoman of the Hispanic National Bar Association's Voting Rights Committee, leading efforts to protect Latino voting rights. She has previously served as senior attorney in the voting section of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice and as senior attorney and director of the Voter Protection Program at Advancement Project. We're delighted to have you, Kathy. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And just to clarify, I'm no longer with Advancement Project, but it was a great experience. So I work with DEMOS now. Yep. Just to no. clarify that. Yeah, I, I think I said previously, and I um, the Department of Justice thing was previously, too. You're not there now you're at Demos. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. It sounded like I had five different jobs. I think I only have three. <laughs> no, but you do have great background and excellent experience. So we're very delighted to have you. So, thank you so much. So this election saw an uprising of populist frustration with the quote-unquote establishment and an apparent rift between rural and urban America. It saw allegations of Russian meddling in the election and FBI interference what role did these play in the outcome, and what role did voter suppression play? Let's put it to you first, Mark. What was the biggest takeaway for you from this election? Uh, that's, that's a great question, and I think it's one that I'm still trying to answer at this point. So um, I guess my what first got my attention was the, the populist um, slash authoritarian tinge to this election, and I think that got my attention primarily because that fits in with the research that I'm currently conducting um, I'm in the middle of a long, ongoing project on the place of populism in American politics. And at least initially, um, Bernie Sanders, but primarily Donald Trump, seemed to fit uh, a lot of the work that I was doing. And I, and I do think there's a certain amount of populism to Donald Trump. But as I've progressed in, in both my research and watching this election unfold, 
I don't think populism fully explains Trump. I think that we also have to get into the concept of authoritarianism. And and po- uh, Trump really combining those two things is is something that we haven't seen take the forefront in American politics really, I don't think, since George Wallace uh, mm-hmm. in the late 1960s. And But Trump obviously took it much further with far more success than Wallace did. So that's what I've been paying the most attention to. I don't know that that's the most important thing to take away, but it's the one that's got my attention. What about you, Kathy? What's the big takeaway for you from this election? Uh, I think this is an election in which we've seen the highest um, level of racially polarized voting in some time. And I guess as a voting rights lawyer and a civil rights lawyer, that's something that, you know, I pay attention to. Um, um, I can also say that, you know, this is an unprecedented election and that it's the first presidential election without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, which um, uh, were eviscerated by the Supreme Court in June of 2013. So, you know, we no longer have the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, and we've been working to um, to update the Voting Rights Act and to restore the Voting Rights Act since that decision, but it's highly unprecedented. And also, you know, the racially polarized voting is, is really, um, you know, it's it's um, it's quite high, um, and um, it's something that I haven't seen. It's existed in our country for quite some time, um, but it's usually higher, you know, in the Deep South or in local elections. Um, you know, it never went away completely just because we elected our first African-American president. Um, and yet in this election, we see, you know, even higher levels of racially polarized voting, which just means there's a much higher likelihood that people of color would vote in one block and um, and whites would vote in another block. The other thing about the racial polarization is that we saw, as I said, people of color would vote in one block. You know, we used to have basically different um voting patterns among African-Americans and Latinos and Asian and Pacific Islanders, Native Americans. And this election, from what I can tell so far from the results, there seems to be you know, a lot of cohesion among people of color and a higher level of cohesion among, among white voters. And so, you know, it's, it's a division in our nation that we really need to heal. Um, and it won't go away because we have rapidly changing demographics. And if we are a democracy, we're going to have to make sure everybody can participate instead of trying to block their right to vote. I want to talk a lot more about that polarization in the show. But um, before we get off the topic of the Voting Rights Act, Kathy, can you explain what happened to the Voting Rights Act? And if you know, can you help us sort of quantify what effect that had in this election? Sure. Yeah, I can explain. Um, with the Voting Rights Act in June of 2013, um, the Roberts Court made a decision in the case of Shelby versus Holder. And it was one of several cases that were brought by very conservative um, folks who were trying to sort of dismantle, um, you know, voting rights protections over the course of the last 10 years. Um, and so the Shelby decision in that case, the Roberts Court held that the pre-clearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act were um, uh, were not constitutional in the way that they were formulated. The formula of which states and jurisdictions fell under preclearance. Um, and preclearance no meant what? Yeah, so preclearance, let me just break it down to the question. So preclearance meant that in states with a history of racial discrimination in voting and jurisdictions, counties with a history of racial discrimination in voting, rather than test driving their voting changes in elections, like we just saw, they had to get pre-clearance. They had to submit their proposals to change their voting laws to the Department of Justice or to a federal court and prove that they wouldn't have a discriminatory impact. So just stop those things from being test-driven during elections. And um, 
And, and Congress, by the way, could update the formula. The Roberts Court left open that Congress could update the formula for preclearance based on current conditions. And there is legislation in Congress that's been proposed, but so Congress, Congress has not held a hearing on the matter for over three years. And this election actually shows there are current conditions of discrimination. So the court had said, you know, look, racism is a thing of the past. You know, the late Justice Scalia said the Voting Rights Act is a racial entitlement. Um, you know, states in the South shouldn't be treated differently based on things that are way in the past. And there's a, there, it came with a theory of, you know, equality of states' rights. Were, um, and so, but did say that, you know, if current Congress could update the formula based on current conditions, which brings me to the current conditions that we just saw in this election, it is hard to quantify the impact. But with the remaining provisions of the Voting Rights Act, um, the voting rights bar and the people who brought these cases actually had a winning streak this year. Um, six major voting rights cases won late this summer, and then a few more. Um, one in the weeks before the election, we got injunctions at demos against purges in Ohio and failure to register voters in North Carolina. So despite all of those wins, I do believe that there was still an impact of voter suppression. Despite all of that, there were 14 states that had new voter suppression laws in this election. Um, and uh, to prove that it was a factor is something um, that's difficult to say one way or another. Um, but it's hard to say that it wasn't a factor. Can I just say that? In, in all of these cases, you know, we have shown uh, that there has been some sort of discriminatory impact um, against black and Latino voters or against low-income voters or against people who move frequently so they've registered, you know, um, recently um, where they haven't voted as frequently as other voters. In all of these cases, you know, we see that, you know, there are blocks of voters that, um, have been targeted or impacted by these forms of voter suppression. And so um, I do believe that it had an impact on this election. And I think part of the impact is not just the individual voters who um, necessarily would be barred from voting, um, but people who would um, experience a time tax, as it's called, as sort of a new form of toll, of toll tax that it's just harder to vote. You don't have the time. You have to work. You have to take care of your family. The rules are confusing. You weren't aware of them. They weren't in a language that you speak if, um, you know, English isn't your first language. And so I think that there's, you know, an ongoing form of voter suppression um, that is very difficult to measure, but people are just discouraged. Mm -hmm. They live in these states and in this country where, you know, um, some people are trying to make it harder to vote. Or they see a long line, and, you know, we heard reports um, during early voting this year and on Election Day not only of long lines, but, you know, some people leaving because they had to go to work mm -hmm. so they weren't able to vote. So, so I do think that there was an impact. So, Mark, talk about voter participation patterns in general. Was vo voter participation up or down? And what were the factors that you think might have contributed to that, not only nationally but here in Maine? Well, certainly nationally, voter participation was down in 2016. If if you compare it to really the last uh, three, if not four, presidential election cycles, I mean, 2004, 2008, 2012 saw um, relatively historically high levels of voter turnout in the United States. And 2016, I mean, the preliminary, you know, numbers are still preliminary. We're still getting final um, data in, but uh, even without, even with some data outstanding, it's clearly going to be lower in 2016. So. The question, the interesting question is, is why? And, and answering that fully is going to be very difficult, if not 
impossible to get it to, to fully quantify and say, okay, this percentage is attributable to this factor. But I think the things we need to look at, um, uh, one thing that, that I think it's pretty clear was at play in this race was, um, you know, less enthusiasm about both presidential candidates, but perhaps if we're honest in particular about Hillary Clinton on the part of Democrats, um, a lot of Democrats were not as enthusiastic about Secretary Clinton as they were about um, Senator and then President Barack Obama. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think we, we clearly have to look at these new um, restrictions uh, placed on, on voting, whether that is fewer polling places, whether that is less early voting, whether that is voter ID laws. Um, I think that undoubtedly uh, had an impact. So the and time tax, as Kathy points out. Absolutely. Right? I mean, and, and, and quantifying that is so difficult to do, and she's absolutely right about that. Um, but I think there will be work being done on that, and we'll we'll be able to get a, a decent estimate, if not a, a, a for sure percentage, on there. But we'll we'll learn more um, over time on that. Um, and and I think also we we need to look at kind of public mood in some ways. And and there's a you know James Stimson, who's a, a professor at, at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, has done a lot of work on public mood, and uh, it, it's it's a real phenomenon, and it ebbs and flows and the public mood you know for lack of a better characterization characterization was quite sour in 2016 um, I think that did you know ultimately lead some people to throw up their hands and say you know I, I uh, pox on both houses or pox on all four houses if you want to count um, the libertarians and the greens and I'm going to stay home but it's an important question to try and answer we know what to look at I don't think we know what percentage to assign where yet mm-hmm. and you know we um, have heard um, talk about rigged elections. And I I know people on the progressive side who think elections have been stolen going back to Ohio and Georgia in previous years. And we heard Trump starting to cross over into if he loses, the election must have been rigged territory. I mean, we're not really talking about rigging in that way. But we are talking about, um, I don't know, Dirty tricks or what exactly? Well, I mean, I, I think at least as far as I have seen, as far as I can tell, there is no credible evidence that's come forward in actual quote unquote rigging of elections. Um, and, and that's it's been a long time since we've seen anything like that. Um, both people from both, you know, the right and the left of American politics said consistently throughout this election um, Donald Trump wasn't always one of them, but said consistently that, that American elections are, are safe and free. And, and I think that, at least based on what we know so far, is largely true. That being said, there is a long history in the United States of doing things that are less than fully above board to try and influence election outcomes in your favor, whether that is trying to increase turnout among your supporters or depress turnout on the part of your opponents. And it, it isn't generally doesn't cross the line of legality into illegal territory, but certainly unsavory territory and less than fully above board, that's not abnormal. And I think we see that in every election cycle. In some cycles, we see it more than others. And from what we know so far, it seems that 2016 was one of the higher levels of that for for recent cycles. You're tuned to the democracy. 
Let me just do a little station break here, Kathy, and then I'm going to throw that question right back over to you. So um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther with the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is election reflections. What just happened in election 2016? Our guests this morning are Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Kathy Culleton-Gonzalez, Senior Counsel at DEMOS. Um, I was asking a question before about rigged elections. Mark um, gave us his take on it, and Kathy had a comment to make. So to you, Kathy. Oh, yeah, thank you. Well, I actually don't like the term rigged, and I think that, you know, for the most part, um, for the most part, our elections aren't, you know, quote-unquote stolen. But I do think that, you know, this wave of voter suppression laws since the election of our first African-American president is also based on politicians manipulating the voting rules for their own political gain. And so it's a very interesting legal question, and we have a, a wide-open Supreme Court. So, um, you know, whether or not you can legally try to manipulate an election because of your um, party interests, whether, you know, Republican or Democratic party interests could be a legal motive for, for these types of um, gerrymanderings and all the voter suppression laws that we've seen. It's a little bit of an open legal question. And at the same time, the law does prohibit um, racially discriminatory um, changes in voting. Um, it's a hard, hard um case to prove, but we've you know, seen these cases. We've seen a wave of these cases. I think had a winning streak of voting rights cases this summer, which on the flip side means there was a lot of voter suppression and, you know, and, and, and discrimination in voting against certain groups of voters, against African-American and Latino voters, has been proven in a number of cases in recent years. And of course, that impacts the results of the election. So I also don't like the term rigging and feel like, you know, we need to accept the results of the election. But at the same time, um, you know, we can't let this pattern continue. It's just not an American democracy. It's not what our country was founded on for those who are interested in, 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 in the foundation of our democracy, as everyone says they are. Go ahead, Mark. Well, I, I think it's a very good point that whether, whether you can um, manipulate election laws or election processes for partisan gain is maybe an open legal question. Uh, but in terms of it, it's not an open political question. That, that question has uh-huh. long been answered politically with a resounding yes. You um, can. You can. And, and parties do. And, and they have historically. On, and, and it's you know, one, no one side more than another. Who's, who's, it, both sides attempt to do that. Um, I think when you cross into racially discriminatory actions, and that's a different story. And, and Kathy would be able to speak to that better than I would. But the, the history of parties trying to manipulate election laws and processes in their favor um, is as long as American election history in the United States. Kathy, you want to add on? Yeah, sure. No, this is just fascinating. So um, looking at some of the recent redistricting cases before the Supreme Court just last year, um, for example, you know, the, the, the Roberts Court and um, particularly Justice Scalia had said that, um, you know, it, it is forgivable to manipulate the um, to manipulate things in voting if your intention is only partisan politics. Um, but then in these redistricting cases that came up before the court the last year, you know, even the Roberts Court, even Justice Scalia was questioning that, whether or not that that was really fair. So, you know, um, I, I agree there's a long history of it. Um, in recent years, it's been more one party than another party. And, um, you know, many times it does overlap with racial discrimination in voting or other prohibited forms of discrimination in voting. And so, 
you know, we'll have to look at the Supreme Court to see whether or not, you know, that jurisprudence changes. So the way it is now is that sometimes partisan manipulation, um, particularly in these, um, in these vote denial measures and things like voter ID and um, um, the poll taxes and literacy tests and current modern versions of them, you know, cannot be legally justified by pure partisan motives. But sometimes gerrymandering can be legally justified by pure partisan motives. And so that's not the way I think that the law should stay. But um, uh, I think that, that um, you know, if we let that continue, then we won't have free and fair and accessible elections. I mean, it is interesting, you know, in the, the um, work of the majority party since 2010 to cement the machinery of politics to sustain their majority well into the future it seems like they've been pretty successful at that. At the same time, we see, um, you know, Hillary Clinton did win the popular election, as did Al Gore. Um, you know, for the this, so this is happening for the second time in my lifetime. But um, the the party that won the majority in those presidential elections holds none of the levers of power in federal government. I mean, is that the result of this? kind of work to sustain the majority into the future? Well, I think it's partly that. I wouldn't want to say that it's fully that. Um, If you want to understand why the Republican Party has had the success that they've had in cementing this machinery, though, I think you need to get out of Washington, D.C. and getting into the 50 state capitals because that's where they they really are – that's where those policies are passed. That's where their control of governorships and state legislatures is crucial. And, and the Republican Party's understood that. I mean, Democrats understand it too. They just haven't been able to do anything about it. And so really, if you want to fully understand this, get out of Washington and start traveling around. That's where you'll get your answers on that. you want to comment on that, Kathy? No, I actually agree. And I think that um, it also has everything to do with changing demographics in different parts of the country. So, um, you know, we've seen all this voter suppression again in response to you know, the, the, the changing face of American citizenship. And um, so I think that demographics is also going to play a part in it. The next generation is not majority white. And, um, you know, that's why we've seen these attacks on uh, Latino voters and on African-American voters um, and this wave of voter suppression. And at the same time, you know, the rising new majority um, is, is not majority white. And so there's going to be more fights, but it's got to even out sometime soon. Um, as long as we and, and as long as people keep an eye on it, um, there's got to be a way out of this mess where we have a, a more equal democracy because it's it's not an equal democracy now. It's been a 15-year effort going back to 2010 to implement across the 14 states some of these voter restriction laws. That's a pretty long trajectory. I mean, are we on that long a trajectory, even if we could be as effective? in removing some of these restrictions? Well, I, think and I actually think it's... Uh, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. Jump go ahead. in, thank you, and say, I, I, you know, all, all signs are pointing to it possibly being worse, that there could be, you know, attempts at voter suppression at the federal level with the new composition of the Congress, and without actually, you know, being the Republican Party platform, um, is not to have free and fair and accessible elections, but strict voter ID laws that um, some people who no longer drive or... Um, you know, don't have their birth certificate or don't um, have the $555 to pay for another copy of their naturalization papers, you know, could get. So I think it's going to be getting worse than even at the federal level. And at the state level, it's going to be a mixed bag. Um, there's going to be states that, 
make it worse. And there are going to be other states, um, you know, like Maine, that have same-day registration, that have good voting systems, that could enact automatic voter registration and more people could participate. So I think it's going to be, you know, I guess the, the saying all over the map, you know, really applies um, at this moment. Well, well, I think if, I think the sh- if if you wanted to look at length, uh, like trajectory length, in terms of maybe reversing this, first of all, I, I don't think we're even close to doing that with the political process because in order to do that, you'd have to get the groups and the party in power that wanted to reverse that, and that's just not the case right now. Uh, certainly not the federal level and Republicans who are are the party right now pushing these kind of measures uh, mo- for the most part um, control far more state capitals than do Democrats. Um, but even if even if Democrats were start to start to chip away at that, changing the policy that way takes time. So even if you got to that tipping point, which I think demographically you eventually will, and I think it's, you know, we, we heard a lot of talk in 2012 of, oh, this might be the last election cycle where, you know, Republicans can win with a pump up the white vote strategy. Well, we were wrong, at least by one cycle. But I don't, you know, 2020, uh, maybe, maybe not. 2024, I think we're we're good in saying you won't be able to do that anymore. Demographically, something will have to change and the political tide will shift. But that takes time. The shorter, the way to get a shorter time period is obviously through the courts. Um, and, and, and we've seen that before in American politics. But in order to do that, you need to be in control of the nominations to the federal courts. And the Republicans have that right now. And, and there's going to be a replacement for Antonin Scalia at some point, probably relatively quickly in 2017. And I would be very surprised if he does not take the um, what is the now standard Republican Party line on strict voting requirements to supposedly reduce and eliminate voter fraud. I, I, I think that'll be a litmus test. It won't be talked about that way, but I think it will be. Mm-hmm. Kathy, comment on that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we can't forget that there's going to be you know other vacancies and other federal courts. And so you know, it does seem that litigation is one of the few avenues that we have left. And as a person who's litigated, you know, we're not going to stop litigating because, you know, we have to think about, you know, what we can do with the tools that we do have. And so, um, you know, the political process is going to be really hard at the federal level. And, um, um, you know, at, at the same time, you know, sometimes litigation is effective. And I do feel hopeful that there are some states that are going to pass more and more um um, measures that make it easier to vote in our country, and um, um, you know, such as automatic voter registration or same-day registration, and stop making it so difficult. We are, you know, the only modern democracy that makes it so difficult to vote. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that we're going to have. I hope that there will be a rising voting rights movement, democracy movement in our country. Um, that um, you know is going to have to be done at the state from the state level up. So, I mean, that almost forecasts the situation, and we have some states moving more strongly in one direction and some other states moving just as strongly in the other direction, and that gets us into talking about, you know, a divided nation. Sometimes we talk about the two mains, but this almost forecasts increasing polarization before we start coming back together. Um, And some of us were... Uh, you know, honestly surprised by by the outcome. The polling forecasts were not um, predicting a Trump win. How did we get? How did the polling get it so wrong? That's a, that's an incredibly important question. I think that's that's something that um, 
a lot of my colleagues are already starting to, to study. And um, I was I was in Boston last weekend for a conference, and that was you know that was the topic of, around every you know panels were had to, had other subjects, but the topic in the hallways and between meetings was what went wrong here. And and I think it's going to take again take us a little while to answer that. But I think one thing that that's clear, at least to me at this point, is Donald Trump brought voters out on election day and he did it during the primary season too and we saw it um, who were not regular voters by any definition and all pollsters have likely voter models and they vary around the margins but if you're someone who's an infrequent voter and you came out for trump your those models weren't going to pick you up and so i think that that's that's a big part of it and is that one or two percentage points Probably, and and that's a big deal in a close mm-hmm. election like this. So that's that's part of it. I've heard a lot of speculation that there might have been some Trump supporters who um, were somewhat either embarrassed or unwilling to tell um, pollsters that they were Trump supporters, and therefore either refused to participate uh, in the survey or outright lied. Mm-hmm. I think the refusal to participate is probably more likely, but I think there was probably some of that. Um, and then I also think there was some real late movement. And I think the exit polls showed us that. The people who made up their minds in the last week, and whether you want to attribute that to the FBI's virtually unprecedented Comey letter, I mean, we, we can talk about that as well. But um, polls sometimes miss some of that late movement. And if you look at uh, some of the, the states that really surprised us, you know, something like Wisconsin, for example, um, nationally, I think it was six or seven or five percentage points of people who decided in the last week went for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. It was almost 20 points, I believe, in Wisconsin. And, and, there, and Florida was double digits, and um, I think Michigan was as well. Pennsylvania, I think, was 15. So I, I think we have to look at a, those things. There's probably other factors, but those are the ones that I point to. Were the polls themselves a factor making the Clinton supporters complacent and the Trump supporters more determined? I think it could very well be. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that you know we heard for weeks and weeks and weeks uh, that you know, really the last month of the campaign, at least pre Comey letter, that you know this was in the bag for Hillary Clinton, and we were talking about how is she going to be able to expand the Democratic map, and she was sending money to down ballot races, and this was a, this was about as close to a coronation ending as you could get, and it seemed like even Trump was admitting that he couldn't win. Now that changed, I think, um, on that la- you know, the, the Friday when that letter came out. I remember seeing that pop up on my phone and, and thinking, okay, the world just changed a little bit here. Um, it turned out I think it changed a lot. Uh, but I, I do think that if you were, if you were a, especially if you were a Hillary supporter and you were less than enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton, and let's say you had been a, a rabid Bernie Sanders person during the primaries, and Hillary Clinton just made you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and you thought you know, that you know, she was given this through um, somewhat underhanded means, which there was a little bit of that, we know, from, from you know, some of what the DNC did, made it easier for you to say, okay, with a clean conscience, I'm not going to vote for her. I'm not putting Trump in the White House. It's going to make it easier for me to stay home or else I'll go out. I'll vote down ballot. So, yeah, I think so. But I also think it could have fired some Trump people up and mm-hmm. said, you know what? They've been wrong the whole time about Trump. I'm going to show them. Yeah. We're going to make sure to show them we're wrong. So I think it, it probably was more for Clinton than for Trump people. But I think it could have played both ways. Yep. Um, we're at the 1030 mark. At um, this point, I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Kathy Culleton-Gonzalez, Senior Counsel at Demos. 
Our topic today is election reflections. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or if you're local, 469-0500. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line so that others can also participate. Um, So, Kathy, back to you. What about the polling? Do you want to make a comment on how that was so wrong and what effect that might have had on the outcome? Yeah, I think so. Just to add to what Professor Brewster said, which I completely agree with, um, you know, people don't always tell the truth to pollsters. And, um, you know, this was a very polarized election. And so I've seen some polling showing that, you know, even um, um, among whites, that husbands were trying to convince their wives to vote for Trump and, um, and, and the wives may have voted differently or not. But there was a lot of contention, you know, in those families. Um, so there were higher levels of, of men trying to convince women to vote for, for their candidate. Um, and so that would make it pretty hard to just, you know, get on the phone and tell the truth. Or maybe they maybe they changed their mind. Um, and the other thing, I, I wanted to make a point about polling, which is a little bit different, and um, which is that, um, you know, the exit polls that you see, leave out um, certain communities. So it's very hard to know exactly what happened at this point. So, for example, the CNN exit poll said that um, I think 27% of Latinos voted for Trump, but then when you get the polling from Latino Decisions, which is in Spanish and reaches the community and doesn't leave them out, um, you see that that number was very, very low, and Latinos overwhelmingly voted against his bigotry. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. there's also polls that leave out African-Americans, who's targeted and things along those lines. And um, I think, if you don't mind, I want to talk about Wisconsin, who have spent a lot of time in Wisconsin, you know, talking to voters who are just crying because they thought that they couldn't vote because they didn't have ID. And these were people sometimes who fell in the exception, right? So, um, you know, that election, the margin was, you know, 1% from what we know so far, and fewer people turned out in Milwaukee than other places. And I think the voter ID law and just the exhaustion of trying to understand what the rules are about voter ID, um, you know, must have had some sort of impact. So, um, you know, it's going to take a, a long time to unravel exactly what happened. And, yeah, so if people want to look at the polls and rely on the polls and think these polls show certain things, but... Um, you know, they're really only polls, but it's always different when you look at the actual election results. We do have a caller on the line now, Lindy from Southwest Harbor. Go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, yes, thank you for the program. Um, I just uh, had an interesting conversation with a, a group of people at the library in Southwest Harbor. had a tea, and um, people are shocked and very upset. Uh, <clears throat> and... The one conversation I had with this one woman, she said, um, I didn't vote for Hillary and I didn't vote for Trump. And I said, well, do you realize not voting for uh, a no vote for Hillary was a vote for Trump? And so are you aware of that if you voted for Trump, you voted for a man who speaks hate speech, who in one of the early forums of the debates when all the candidates were on stage, uh, the bathrooms were further away from where the men's bathrooms were, and it took Hillary a little longer to, to get there and back. And uh, Trump said, I'd like to know what this woman was doing in the bathroom. It's disgusting. It's in the, all the papers. It's disgusting. Now, if that wasn't a clue as to the the 
posture of, of this man. And it never stopped. And he never stopped on Hillary, bashing Hillary, saying really rude things to her that have never been spoken as he has spoken. Uh, then a, an 11-year-old tape came up of women said that he had groped them in, in, in the locker room, and then he says, yes, I'd like to kiss women. Yes, I'd like to grope women. Well, can you imagine if Hillary had a, a tape came out where Hillary was in uh, the bathroom groping a man? So, Lindy, do you have a question? Well, I, it's not so much a question. Is that when I listen to people like you talk about, you know, what happened in this election, you take it out of what the issues are and, and, and box it into a... Um, a political arg- argot, which is really hard for a lot of people to understand. We have, I like you people to really analyze what happens when the Republicans do all this gerrymandering and redistricting. And how can we have Hillary win the popular vote, but the electoral vote count? And it, it's dirty, dirty, dirty politics. It is a witch. It was a witch hunt for Hillary. That guy Comey coming out 10 days before the election with emails that were already looked at and there was nothing there. So, Lindy, let me ask our guest to comment on that. I think you're raising two very interesting um, questions. One is sort of around the vast right-wing conspiracy that's been after Hillary, you know, for 30 years, let's just say. And the other has to do with the um, electoral college versus the popular vote. Mark, do you want to comment and, on and that? The, and, uh, and the redistricting and gerrymandering, which is done mostly by Republicans. Right. And try to keep in a, in, a, in a language that is not a political language, but is, that is a, a human-based uh, language. Thanks, Lindy. Thank you. Well, I, I guess maybe I'll take the Electoral College. Go ahead. Uh, and, and, I mean, again, it, it's true that, that Hillary Clinton, at least so far, has won the popular vote, and it looks like that will hold up. Um, at the same time, she's losing the Electoral College vote. As you alluded to earlier, this is now the second time this has happened in, in recent history. Uh, that being said, uh, I, I personally would not point to that as, an evident, as evidence of some kind of conspiracy to take the election away from someone or um, anything nefarious. It, it's, it's the system that the, the designers of the Constitution came up with because they were genuinely afraid of, quote-unquote, average voters making a choice for president of the United States. They thought the average voter was ill-equipped uninformed and simply was not up to the task of choosing that person. So therefore, they came up with a mechanism of electors that we gave the name of Electoral College. I don't, I don't, you could get one outcome in the popular vote and a different outcome in the Electoral College. We historically haven't, but it's possible. It's happened a few times. If you view that as illegitimate, that's certainly a legitimate perspective. But that's something that you would need to address through constitutional amendment. I don't. I don't think that's any kind of dirty trick. That's just the system we have. Kathy, what what about this? I mean, I, I hear in our caller's voice uh, the outrage that many people feel that um, somebody who espouses um, racial and misogynistic views could. Po- I mean, how could this person have been elected? Um, what would you like to say to her about that? Um, I guess I want to say that, that to the caller that I, that, that I hear you, and um, 
you know, I work for a nonpartisan organization, but, you know, I'm a mother and a woman and, you know, I have Latino kids and I, you know, live in this uh, progressive area where we've seen swastikas and we've seen, you know, racist graffiti in the elementary schools. It's very disturbing. And one of the biggest takeaways of this election, and you can look at polling that shows this, is that it's very, very hard for a woman to be elected president in the United States. Um, a woman has been elected president in many other countries, um, particularly in Latin America, um, since their transition to democracy away from dictatorships. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do believe that there's study after study showing that type of implicit bias um, for women in any context. And, you know, there is a very, very strong indication of, you know, the... Um, that sexism and misogyny played played a role in, in um, you know, the outcome of the election. So I need to be careful to be nonpartisan, but I don't think that we can take that away um, from the analysis at all. Um, and the other thing that um, I think is really important for folks to understand is just the structural racism. We have a white woman running, but she's supported more by people of color. She has embraced um, our first African-American president. And um, we see extremely racially polarized voting patterns, and we also see, you know, voting patterns by, by gender as well, too. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, there have been studies showing, you know, exactly the same um, uh, fact pattern happening, um, as the caller pointed out. You know, just imagine if, um, you know, Hillary Clinton had said some of the things that Donald Trump had said um, or... Um, you know, come across as so threatening or cussed or, um, you know, talked about people that who she disliked. And, and, you know, I think she had one comment that she retracted, that she unintentionally called Trump voters um, deplorable, right, um, or a basket of deplorables. And she just immediately had to retract that. And I agree she should have, but that men and women candidates are treated differently in our country has become abundantly clear. And in the aftermath, I think that, you know, those of us who care about uh, our families and our communities and equality and justice and women's rights and civil rights need to come together and um, protect each other, protect the children, support each other, and um, try to make change happen in our country from the ground up. It, it's a very um, unprecedented election, and I think that, um, you know, this misogyny is, is part of the reason that the results came out the way that they did. That's just my personal opinion, and also I'm speaking, I hope, in a nonpartisan manner, but, um, yeah. you know, definitely hear the viewer, and I think that, um, you know, we can't um, divorce the changes that are needed in our voting system from the structural racism and the misogyny that's, you know, part of the fabric of American society, apparently more than we thought. We have another caller on the line. Yo, go ahead with your question or comment. You're on the air. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. I wonder if you can tell listeners anything about computerized vote tallies and fractionalized vote counts. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Do either of you have any expertise in that area? I do not, so I, I I don't think I could respond to that. Unfortunately, I'm gonna have to apologize for that. Kathy, any thoughts? I mean, I have, I know other um, folks who are experts. I think in the subject that the caller was calling about. So, um, as, as, and and I and I understand the concerns about you know the Russian interference and hacking and things like that. So our voting machines in our country are are really pretty old. Um, and it was after 2000 that the Help America Vote Act was passed that. 
you know, called for changes in the voting machines and the vote tally um, systems that we have in our country, and it's been, you know, 16 years since then. Um, and um, what I understand is that electronic voting machines should also be accompanied by a paper trail so that we have a backup paper trail or a backup paper ballot um, in case something goes wrong with the computerized systems. And I, I also wanted to just wonder, um, you know, if, if part of the part of the call is about, you know, in Maine, you just passed um, ranked choice voting. And mm-hmm. that's really interesting. So there's all kinds of systems that, that um, you know, may have made the results a little bit different um, and a little bit more open to, um, to expressing the will of the people. Right? So I don't know if, if that's part of what anyone wanted to talk about is the ranked choice voting. Um, we have another caller on the line, David, in Brooklyn. Go ahead. Uh, two things immediately come to the top of my full head. Uh, one is that we have to know more than we seem to know and be better informed than we seem to be about the nature of computerized voting. Uh, I know for a fact that the party who owns Debald, I believe, which is the company making most of the voting machines, is controlled by the Koch brothers. Uh, You know, I think we need to really consider in this age of high-tech hackism whether there is any way we can possibly revert to the old paper ballot system, even though it might take weeks for us to figure out who won. What a disaster to have to wait for weeks in order to count the votes. I think we could probably live with it if it would give us any greater degree of certainty, because I don't believe we have certainty uh, with electronic voting. Uh, And I think we need to face up to this uh, as a country and do something about it. Uh, The second thing that comes to mind is that to, uh, to gloss over the notion of deplorables and focus on the notion of Sexism is a grave mistake, and it's going to seriously impact the effectiveness of uh, what used to be the intellectual elite in this country, the people who maintain for the uh, wisdom of the republic, so to speak. Uh, It's not fully... Pardon me. Okay, that's enough. I, I, I'll, no, David, I, I don't think I understand your second your second point. Can uh, you say we, that we, we, we we gloss over we gloss over uh, 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 Secretary Clinton's use of the term deplorables, uh, calling it a slip of the tongue, a mistake, and focus in on uh, uh, President-elect Trump's. Uh, um, much more blatant and frequent uh, uh, misuse of uh, public morality. Uh, But I think we do that at a great peril to ourselves, uh, as as I'm going to say it, uh, intellectual elite, the the constituents, uh, the the, uh, the information information, Source. I'm trying not to be too heavy-handed here. You know, in this democratic adventure, uh, if we, if we, if we uh, uh, supposed Democrats uh, uh, find that even by mistake we refer to the almost 
majority, if not full majority, of the voters of this country as deplorable. That's a big problem. That's a really, really big problem. And I think we really, really need to look inside our own intellectual construct at how we view our fellow humans. Okay, David, I think I'm getting the gist of it. Is it let me ask the, the listeners to comment on that. I, I hear where, where David's going as being to try to find a place where we can denounce racism, sexism, and bigotry while at the same point not diminishing the authentic voices of those that we disagree with. Um, Mark, you want to take a sh- shot at that? Well, actually, I'd like to. I, I will. Um, I want to. I want to first, though, go back to the first point raised about the voting machines. And and I am not a voting technology expert by any means, but I, I've studied uh, American elections for a long time. And as far as I can tell, there is no credible evidence of voting machine manipulation or fraud or failure. Um, also, as far as I know, uh, American, uh, you know, as Kathy pointed out, our, our electronic voting machines even are so old, they're not connected, uh, they're not linked, they're not networked. Um, so I, I guess I just want to be very careful about trying to say that that election outcomes are in any way fraudulent because of, of voting machine manipulation or failed technology or anything like that. So I, I, I would not want to give any indication of support for that. I think the second point the caller made is a very valid one, that one of the things we, we should take away from this election is that there are uh, a large number of Americans who feel like their concerns have been and interests have been ignored um, by the elites of both parties for quite some time. And uh, they uh, are in increasingly desperate uh, economic situations um, and they see very little hope for the future. And I, I think that they, uh, on both sides, on both the, the left and the right, found candidates who they thought spoke to them, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side, Donald Trump on the Republican side. And I think if, you know, there's a lot of things maybe that concern us about 2016, but I think one thing that we should take out of this and that can benefit us is there's a large number of Americans that fit into that um, that group, and we need to pay attention to them, and we need to, you know, we need to seriously hear their concerns. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with them on that for yeah. sure. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Kathy Culleton-Gonzalez, Senior Counsel at Demas. Um, we're coming into the last few minutes of our program, but um, we probably have time for one more call. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. Kathy, do you want to comment on that last part about authentic voices? Yeah, sure. No, I think it's also an excellent comment that I really appreciate. Um, I, I also want to refer folks to a coalition, the National Election Defense Coalition, who does, who has quite a bit of expertise in, in, the, in the question about computerized vote tallies and electronic voting and um, some solutions that, they've, um, that they're working on. So they're at electiondefense.org. And with authentic voices, yeah, I actually... Um, cringed when I when I heard the comments about deplorables, and I hope that I would, you know, never speak that way about you know my fellow citizens and human beings. But I also feel that um, the point is is that if a if a if a woman makes remarks like that, um, she's treated differently than if a man makes remarks like that. And so study after study has has shown that, and we've also seen 
you know, the impact of, of sexism on voting patterns, and I'm sure there'll be more future studies, but, you know, it's, it's um, you know, study after study about that type of implicit bias and just how hard it has been for a woman to be treated seriously as a presidential candidate in our country. But I do take away from this election that people are just, you know, sick and tired of feeling that there's intellectual elites or, um, you know, basically money in politics running their lives. Um, and at Demos, we are fighting against the influence of money in politics. Um, we hope that um, the incoming president um, is true to um, his promises that he made about getting money out of politics or, um, you know, making sure that um, that we don't answer to the interest of Wall Street and we said answer to the interest of the demos of the people in our democracy. So I think that there is... Um, out of this election, a call for a more inclusive democracy and for our interests as a people not to be controlled by big money and by um, the elite class, which has been mostly dominated by, by white men historically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that um, somehow our country heals and comes together and that we have more inclusion, that women and people of color can, can, can make it as politicians all the way to the highest levels and be effective and not have to face racism and sexism. We have one more call. Uh, Mary-Kate from Camden, go ahead. You're going to be our last caller today. Hi. Well, thanks for the show. I'm sorry I caught it at the end, and I hope you'll continue this discussion for the next four years to come. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, um, when Lindy called and she said that a vote for not for Hillary was a vote for Trump, I, I have to disagree with that. I think it depends on what district you were living in, uh, in the state, um, that would have been true in district two, um, in other districts, I believe that would not have been true. Uh, I think it's very important to, um, realize that yes, in some cases and no in others. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Any comment from our guests here? Go ahead, Mark. I see you. Well, I think even I think even in Maine, even if you were in the first district, a vote a vote for one of the non-major party candidates was a vote really against one of them because you have a statewide you have a, you know two of the electoral votes are determined statewide. So, in Maine and Nebraska, are the only places that do it that way. So, I don't even know if that argument would fully hold in Maine or Nebraska for that matter, but it certainly wouldn't hold in the other 48 states. But certainly in the Libertarian Party and the Green Party and trying to build a base and qualify for the ballot, um, you know, wanted to get people voting for their candidates. Oh, for sure. And and, and they are at a significant disadvantage. Uh, you know, state ballot access law uh, puts non-major parties, quote unquote, non-major parties at a, a massive disadvantage in, in competing for elections. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, the way the rules are written right now, if let's say that you are somewhat left of center and you very much prefer, or so let's say you're, you're quite a bit left of center and you prefer Jill Stein to Hillary Clinton and you voted for Jill Stein, were you really voting for Donald Trump? Yes. I As mean, that's just the reality out. answer yep. on that. Which, which is where ranked choice voting comes in and maybe that'll be a topic for another show. Um, you know, we're coming towards the end of the hour, and I don't want to leave the topic before we ask the final question, what are the opportunities for citizens to have an effect on federal and state policy over the next two years, both here in Maine and nationally? To you first, Kathy. Um, 
I think being aware and listening to shows like this is, is really important um, at the federal level. Um, if you don't want politicians manipulating your voting rights, please stay in touch with your members of Congress and tell them that you oppose strict voter ID and that you're in favor of restoring the Voting Rights Act. And at the state level, um, keep pushing states like Maine to continue to make it um, easier and more, um, more accessible to vote. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kathy Cullerton GV, or you can follow Demos um, Action at Demos underscore ORG and get information about what's going to be happening um, in voting rights across the country. Any thoughts for citizen engagement, Mark? Well, I think Kathy's absolutely right. The first step is to stay engaged and to stay informed. I think that's the first step that any any citizen who wants to be involved needs to take is to is to know what's going on. I mean, America's representative democracy depends on at least some critical mass of somewhat informed and engaged citizens. So I think that's the first step. Um, in terms of more concrete steps after that, I mean, obviously staying in touch with your elected officials, both in Congress and then here in Maine um, in, the, in the legislature, um, and also your local municipal officials uh, matters a great deal. You know, that research shows that elected officials listen to the constituents who contact them. So I think that's certainly a good um, step once you've got yourself informed. Mm-hmm. Thank you both. We are um, running out of time this morning, so I want to let you both step back, consider the broad arc of this conversation, and compose your parting thoughts for today. Um, Mark, go ahead. Wow, that's that's a, an interesting uh, an interesting task. I mean, I, I think the one thing we need mm-hmm. to to be careful of is to recognize that okay, yes, twenty sixteen is anomalous in many ways. That being said, um, at least right now, the walls are still standing, and we will have to wait to see how the new administration, along with the new Congress at the federal level, actually goes about attempting to govern. But the wheels haven't completely come off. And and I think there was a lot of hysteria on election night and the next day. And a lot of the concern about some of the things that President-elect Trump has said and done is very concerning and very legitimate. But this is not a dictatorship, and there are mechanisms in place uh, where people can have influence and other institutions can can weigh in. And I think we need to to um, we need to keep that in mind as we monitor what's going forward. Kathy, your parting shot. Um, it's very hard to follow um, Mark, Professor Brewer. Um, I, I you know also generally agree this is not a dictatorship, but feel you know very concerned about the the war on voting and how it may have impacted this election and may impact future elections. Um, I think it's very important for citizens to stay aware and engage with groups like the League of Women Voters in Maine um, and groups who are doing great work on the ground, but also keep an eye on what's happening in voting rights at a national level and some of the other issues that callers raise. Um, Here comes our background music, Kathy. I'm going to have to cut you off. We are out of time. Sorry. But thank you to our guests this morning, Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and um, Kathy Culleton-Gonzalez, Senior Counsel at Demos. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. We'll be taking December off at the Democracy Forum, but we'll see you back here on January 20th for a program on the civic mission of public education. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next year.
Support for WERU comes 